1 Thessalonians 2. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and be treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put a mask on to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone, while we preached the gospel to God, of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved." In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Thanks be to God. George will um, no doubt tell us in a second. Uh, This passage is quite a lot about godly leadership in the church. Um, And... um, and uh, what, what that looks like um, and how that manifests in the church. Um, one of the uh, responsibilities given to all churches, to the, to the elderships, leaderships of churches, to raise up um, uh, godly elders from amongst ourselves um, to the position of elder. And, and many of you, particularly if you're a member of the church, will know that um, we're involved with doing that with, with George, as, as well as Micah, but um, today, uh, George, um, 
And so when George preaches this, we, we will involve you in that process. When he, when, when he preaches to us on what godly leadership looks like, um, we also want to invite you um, to speak into um, George's candidate eldersy, uh, eldersy, candidacy of eldership. Um, and so um, uh, and one of those qualifications is ability to teach, teach the word of God. And so um, that's why um, uh, George is, is teaching us today. We are we're giving him a uh, an opportunity to to fan that gift into flame for God's glory and for for our good as a church. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for him now, um, both for his uh, his his message today, but also um, the process of of being raised up um, into an elder, God willing. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you gift your church with gifted and qualified elders who are godly above all. And yet also have the gift of teaching your word faithfully. Lord God, we thank you for George. We thank you for the gift he is to our church. And Father God, as you lead him through this process and lead us as elders through leading him through this process, we pray that you'd give us wisdom and discernment. We pray that where there are still um, unhealthy uh, patterns in his life or remaining sin, Father, we we, we pray that we would um, seek to serve him by uh, pointing that out and um, and praying for him in that. But Lord, also we thank you so much that we are we get to receive uh, what we believe is a gift of the ability to teach your word to us this morning. Uh, we pray that you would, by your spirit, be fanning that into flame in George, and that we would be sitting under not his authority but your authority through him. Father, give us soft hearts as we listen now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, folks. Shai Lin is an American rap artist. And a few years ago, about 10 years ago, actually, he released a song called False Teachers. I'm going to play you a little clip, and the lyrics are going to be on the screen. Popularity of the gospel of prosperity. Turn off TBN. That channel is overrated. The pastors speak bogus statements, financially motivated. It's kind of like a pyramid scheme. Visualize heretics Christianizing the American dream. It's foul and deceitful. They're lying to people. Teaching that camel squeeze through the eye of a needle. Ungodly and wicked. Ask yourself, how can they not be convicted? Treating Jesus like a lottery ticket. And you're thinking they're not the dangerous type. Cause some of the statements are right. That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. This teaching can't be believed without a cost. The lie is you can achieve a crown without a cross. And I hear it all the time when they speak on the block. Even... Well, if you could pick up any of those lyrics, you're doing well. Um, but here they are on the screen. He speaks, Charlene speaks, about the motivations of false teachers. He actually um, calls some out by name um, at the end of the song. Um, I'd recommend having a listen to the song, it's a good track, and actually so are the rest on the album. He references false teachers' desires for fame, their desire for money and success. And as you'll see, don't worry, um, he says, a crown without a cross. And these kind of lyrics, these kind of teachers, stand as a polar opposite to Paul and the words that we've just read about his ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is defending his ministry to the Thessalonian church. He is saying how he faithfully preached the gospel 
despite opposition, in order to serve the church. Yet the false teachers that Shailene was rapping about, and that perhaps we've sadly encountered in our Christian walk, they're centered only on themselves. Paul's ministry, as we've read, is a complete contrast. You see, if leadership is gospel-centered, it serves the church. But leadership that is centered on anything else other than the gospel actually abuses the church. Gospel integrity in leadership is absolutely vital for the health and strength of the church. But sin opposes the gospel. And there is sin both inside the church and outside the church that rears against gospel integrity. And that is what Paul is answering in today's passage. Paul had to flee from the Thessalonian church because of fierce opposition and persecution that was actually threatening his life. And as a result, some of these people who were opposing him and persecuting him were now spreading rumors about Paul and his ministry, attempting to undermine him and lead people astray. So to answer them, Paul, in our passage, Paul clearly lays out his work and his ministry and explains how all he did was in service of the gospel. He's saying, I'm not a false teacher. My motivations were not for myself. Shailene won't rap about me in 2,000 years. He was faithfully gospel-centered whilst he was with the Thessalonians. Church today need leaders like Paul. Leaders who are gospel-centered, no matter what the cost, no matter what the opposition. And as we work through today's passage, we will see that Paul makes it clear that his service was first to the gospel. And through that, he served the church. And that order is crucial. Because Paul was gospel-centered, he could truly love and serve the church. If he did it the other way around and was church-centered, then actually his work would be empty. He'd be failing as a leader, and he would not be truly loving the church. This is why Paul said in verse 4 that he is not trying to please people but God. Leadership that is gospel-centered brings people to Jesus. It brings life. Paul held out the gospel in front of them and encouraged them and urged them into Jesus. Outside the gospel, people don't know what they need or what they want. They're sheep without a shepherd. So Paul served the good shepherd and held him before the church and said, come. Gospel-centered, you lead people to Jesus. People-centered, and you lead people to themselves, away from Jesus. And people away from Jesus are bound for hell. So leadership must be gospel-centered. And only when leadership is gospel-centered does it serve the church. So let's get into today's passage. Have your Bibles open at 1 Thessalonians 2. And I've got four points for you today. My first point is, gospel-centered leadership will be opposed. This is verse 1 until about halfway through verse 7. Gospel-centered leadership will be opposed. As I explained earlier, Paul faced great opposition 
when with the Thessalonians. So much so that it led to a public riot and he had to flee in the middle of the night. Acts chapter 17 tells the full story if you want to read it later. He was forced to make this great escape. And in his absence, his accusers started spreading lies and rumors, undermining his, his ministry, his leadership, and undermining the gospel that he preached. So in response, Paul starts off in verse 1. He says, our visit to you was not without results. Remember that from the off. We came there and there was no church. And now I'm writing to you guys. The very fact that there's a church and it's being opposed and Paul's writing to them was a sign that there was kingdom results following the gospel that he preached. It produced a harvest. He then reminds them that he's actually no stranger to abuse or persecution. In fact, when he arrived with the believers, he had just come from Philippi, where he was opposed and treated outrageously, he says. Acts 16 tells us that Paul was stripped and beaten with rods, and after he'd been severely flogged, he was thrown into prison. This was before he just came to the Thessalonians. Imagine that. Imagine if that happened to any of us. Imagine when we plant a church in a year or two, as we're discussing doing, and the team of us go out and plant. And one day, we're jumped, we're stripped naked, and we're beaten by rods. It's horrendous. It's criminal. But that was the experience of Paul. And that is the experience of many Christians in the world today. Because the gospel brings opposition. Sin hates the gospel. And if leadership serves the gospel, it will be opposed. Sadly, by both those inside and outside the church. Paul knew this. Paul knew the cost of the gospel. He knew that he would face opposition in his ministry. So how could he continue? How could he continue on and go and lead people in Thessalonia? How can we continue in face of opposition? How can church leadership continue to faithfully be gospel-centered in the face of opposition? In Paul's words in verse 2, with the help of our God, God went before him. God dwelt inside of him, just as he dwells inside all of us who believe. And if you were listening a couple of weeks ago, if God is for us, who can really be against us? So let us not be surprised at the opposition that comes with the gospel. And so therefore, let us not try and dodge it by changing what we say. Paul says in verse 3, read with me, the appeal we'll make to you does not spring from error, or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Verse 5, you know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. Verse 6, we were not looking for praise from people, not you or anyone else. Impure motives, tricks, flattery, masks, praise from people. Paul was not interested. He didn't care for any of them. They are the games of the world. They are the games of leaders who do not believe in the power in what they are preaching. And we ought to be very, very careful 
of those kind of leaders. Paul changed his methods, but he did not change his message. A pastor who is not honest and just says what people want to hear, not rebuking sin, not warning people of hell, not pointing people to their saviour, and instead making them feel warm and cosy week after week after week. A pastor like that is neglectful and cares nothing for the flock. Imagine having a CT scan. And afterwards, you're sitting with a doctor who has the results. The results show a tumor, a big tumor, one that could kill you. But instead of making you aware of this and talking through what can be done to remove it and perhaps save your life, not wanting to upset you, the doctor talks about how your BMI is pretty good and how your cholesterol is really good, mentioning nothing of this tumor. That doctor ought to be struck off. And so should every single pastor who is not gospel-centered. The church needs leaders who try to please God and not people. Verse 4. But in so doing, they will face opposition. Because if leadership is gospel-centered, it will be opposed. Read with me in verse 6. We are not looking for praise from people not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Second to Jesus, the apostles with a, with a capital A hold great authority. Paul is a spiritual big dog, and he could have thrown his weight around, asserting his authority with the Thessalonians. But he didn't. He came to them. Like a little child. Big dogs with their big names who throw their weight around, get attention. And people often flock to them. But so often they are self-centered and not gospel-centered. And therefore they don't serve the church. The church actually suffers because of them. Paul knew this. And he came like a child for the good of the church. However, because he did this, he was opposed. People thought he was weak. But he didn't care. He wasn't out to assert himself or make himself the authority. He was out to assert the gospel and make the gospel the authority. So as he wasn't playing the games of the world, he faced opposition. Because if leadership is gospel-centered, it will be opposed. Moving on, my second point is, Gospel-centered leadership will be loving. The way the world defines love is by making the object of our love the center. So, example, if I say I love coffee, coffee is the center of my life. Or if we say we love someone, we say we put them at the center of our life and make sure that they feel at the center of our life. But that's actually only half right. If we're only doing that, then we're not truly loving them. The way to truly love someone is by helping them put God at the center of their life. The way to truly love someone, this is the way. Day by day, encouraging, supporting, and walking with our brothers, sisters, 
wives, husbands, children, friends, helping them put Jesus at the center of their lives. This is the way to truly love someone. And Paul loved the Thessalonian believers, not by putting them at the center, but by putting the gospel at the center. He loved them by serving the gospel first. And he loved them so well and so gently. He described himself as a mother. Look at verse 7. As a nursing mother cares for her children, so he cared for you. In verse 11, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Paul was tender. He was kind. He was like a father and a mother to the church. He was involved with their lives daily. And this is the kind of love that comes from gospel-centered leadership. Paul writes in verse 8, Because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Paul's involved in the church's daily life because of his love for them. He helped them move house. He brought them food when they were sick. He mended things. He stopped by to pray with them and encourage them. He sat with them while they grieved. He rebuked them when they sinned. And he danced with them when they were joyful. This is loving leadership. This is gospel-centered leadership. This is what our Lord and Savior Jesus did. There is a great cost to sharing your life with people like Paul did. It's inconvenient because things don't happen in the way and the time that you'd prefer. It's difficult because you often get taken advantage of and unappreciated. It's hard because you're carrying other people's burdens as well as your own. In fact, it's actually impossible to do without first loving and serving the gospel. But if you do serve the gospel, then it's a delight to do. Verse 8. Gospel-centered leadership will be loving. And the leaders, and as the leaders love us, it will be a delight to them, as verse 8 says. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't appreciate them and thank them for what they do. In sharing his life with the believers, Paul says in verse 10, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were with you who believed. If leadership is gospel-centered, then we can model our lives on our leaders. I've learned such a great deal from spending time alongside leaders here at the Gate Church, alongside gospel family leaders, elders and deacons, just being around them in their lives, seeing how they interact with people, how they parent their kids, how they talk about difficult situations, how they relax. If we share our lives with one another and our leaders... They will, like Paul, be encouraging, comforting, and urging you and us to live lives worthy of God, who calls us into his kingdom and glory. That's verse 12. This is loving leadership. Leadership which points us to God and encourages us and urges us to live lives worthy of God, making Jesus center of all that we do. This is gospel-centered leadership, and it will be loving. The third point, gospel-centered leadership will be transformative. 
Paul had no power in himself to save people. No number of words, no great persuasion, analogies, stories, illustrations, whatever. None of that. No human power can transform us into the image of Christ. Only the word and power of God can save and transform men, women, and children into Christ's likeness. Paul is very aware of this. And this is why he gathers the Thessalonians around God and not himself. Look at verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. This is the way it works. The leader speaks the word of God, which works in the believer. Paul says, what you heard from us, you accept it as the word of God, which is effectively at work in you. This is the only way that church leadership can bring transformation, through speaking the word of God. Paul didn't try and impress them with his words because he knew that they held no power. He gave them God's word because that had the power and that transformed them. The leadership of a church has a job to preach the gospel, the word of God. The church doesn't need pastors doing an inspiring TED talk or from the pulpit. The church needs the word of God as that is what brings new life. It is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. This transformed the Thessalonian church by building it up and unifying it, not just with itself or within itself, but with other churches. Look with me at verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. If leadership is centered on the gospel, and not on the leader's own reputation. The church will be transformed into the image of Christ and therefore resembled the global church. In spite of cultural differences, all true churches will actually display some similarity. But this transformation from the gospel goes even further. Look at the rest of verse 14. You suffered from your own people. The same things those churches suffered from the Jews. The believers are now suffering because of the gospel, just like Paul was. The Thessalonian church was being so transformed by the gospel that they were clinging to it despite the suffering that comes with it. They are choosing Jesus above everything, above comfort and security. Their priorities in life are being transformed by this gospel. Gospel centered leadership will be transformative. People will give up possessions. People move, will move houses to areas of need. People will go on missions. Peaceful, people will face and suffer persecution. Only the gospel brings this kind of radical transformation. So our leaders need to preach it. And we need to hear it. Paul then details the opposition 
that the Thessalonians are facing in verses 15 and 16 from the Jews. The Jews, we read, were rejecting Christ, opposing the gospel, and hindering all from being saved. And as a result, verse 16, God's wrath had come upon them, as Jesus himself had warned. Importantly, though, if Paul had not preached the gospel to these Thessalonian believers, and therefore they weren't transformed by the gospel, they too would be like the Jews opposing them. They would be rejecting Christ, opposing the gospel. They too would be hindering people from being saved and therefore under God's wrath. The gospel transforms hatred towards God to love for him. The gospel transforms self-centered life to one of self-sacrifice. Gospel-centered leadership will be transformative. And then my fourth point is this. Gospel-centered leadership will be enduring. Read of me from verse 17. But, brothers and sisters, when we are orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. When Paul was forced to leave the Thessalonian church because of severe persecution, What was left behind? Did this young church crumble because their pastor had moved on? No, in fact, as we just saw, not only had Paul left, but the church was experiencing persecution of its own. And instead of closing its doors, it was persevering in Jesus. How can this be? How can this church continue despite persecution and despite its founder leaving in such short notice? It's because of the gospel. It's because Paul did not build the church around him. Paul did not build the church around his gifts. Paul did not center the church on itself, the believers, their thoughts or their preferences. Paul founded And he centered the church on the gospel. This means that Paul can come and go. Persecution can come and go. Members could come and go. But the church would still stand. It was on solid ground. Because man is temporary. But the gospel is eternal. Paul was forced to leave through persecution. And ministers have left churches ever since for many good reasons. Some good, some bad, and some ugly. And when they've left, what remains of the church? If their ministry has been centered on the gospel, then the church will continue on. Yes, there'll be times of recovery or transition. It may have to shift its vision or change its name. But if the leadership and therefore the church has been gospel-centered, it will endure. Because it's Jesus' church. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Don't hear what I'm not saying, though. This does not mean that all churches that come to an end are not gospel-centered. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that churches that are not centered on the gospel, churches under leadership that is not gospel-centered, will not endure. Interestingly, in verse 18, Paul says, For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan 
blocked our way. Paul wanted to return. He desperately wanted to go back to the believers, but he couldn't. And he blamed Satan for his return. And despite this, despite Satan's prevention of Paul returning to the Thessalonian church, despite the gates of hell doing their very best, the church, centered on the gospel of Jesus, was built and being built and was standing strong. And our passage closes with these verses. It says this, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. How encouraging this must have been for the believers. To hear Paul saying that their continuation in their gospel, that their following of Jesus, their salvation, was his joy. This is a leader who loves his people. This is a spiritual father who loves his children. Because money and popularity and all these things will not endure. And leaders who seek such things chase smoke. Paul wasn't interested in any of that. And neither should church leaders today. Leaders who seek transformation and salvation through the gospel seek eternally enduring riches. Paul knew his ministry was far more than shepherding a church. He had an internal perspective. He knew his missionary work was far greater than he was. It was not about him. It was about the gospel. And if he knew and he knew that if the gospel was the center, then the church would have an effect on eternity. Those who believe in Jesus will be before Jesus forever. Gospel-centered churches bring people to Jesus for all time. Because gospel-centered leadership will be enduring. So the church needs gospel-centered leadership. The church needs its leaders to be plugging them into, encouraging them, dragging them sometimes, and reminding them of the gospel week after week, day after day. Because gospel-centered leadership, and only gospel-centered leadership, serves the church. Paul closes this section 1 Thessalonians 2, in the same way that he begins it, by addressing the church as brothers and sisters. Verse 1, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Then look at verse 17, but brothers and sisters. Let's not overlook this. This is affectionate. It's humble. It's honoring. Leaders are indeed leaders, appointed by God. But they're also fellow pilgrims on the Christian path. They're not elite or aloof, but fellow plodders on the Christian way. Held to account for their leadership, yep. But also in need of Christian brothers and sisters to walk alongside them. The church needs gospel-centered leaders. But gospel-centered leaders also need the church. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the work he did, preaching and proclaiming the gospel, writing and leading. We thank you that he modeled it. He modeled a life of self-sacrifice, a life of worship and honoring you in all that he did and said. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be believers like Paul, that you would give your church and your, the little outposts of your churches around the world leaders like Paul, leaders that are centered on you and the gospel. And Lord Jesus, as, the, as your body, help us to honor those leaders, to love them, and walk alongside them. For your glory and our good. Amen.